0: to turn to Romans chapter 9, and um, I told you last week that uh, we were going to start the third section of Romans, which is the prophetic section. Kind of gave you a little background overview last week of uh, where we had come from through Romans and where we're going to go with it. I, I gave you those, the four sections, and really the way that the Bible breaks itself down in the book of Romans, it takes a very complicated book and breaks it down into a very easy understanding. And I told you that, uh, and you want to remember this, I told you that these three chapters, chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11, go back to God's dealing with the nation of Israel. And I showed you last week, if you remember, how that, uh, the whole thing was built around that verse that talked about the fact that uh, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. That we are to understand as the church what God is doing with the nation of Israel, because it's one of the key important doctrines of the Bible. And uh, I told you how that what He does here in chapter 9, 10, and 11. (coughs) In chapter 9, (coughs) He begins to show you and me, the church, why Israel got into the mess they got into. We're going to talk about that today. Then in chapter 10, He shows you how that, because they got into a mess, God temporarily uh, puts the Jew on the back burner, so to speak, and then turns his attention to the, to the church, and in chapter 10, we find the, the great verses and the great chapter on Gentiles getting saved. And I think I told you this, that when, when, when I win somebody to Christ, or when we teach you to win somebody to Christ, uh, we take uh, Romans chapter 10, and there is all the verses that you need, and it's a great verse. And then we go into chapter 11. Chapter 11 now deals with the aspect where he shows you that in chapter 9 they got messed up, in chapter 10 God uh, goes to the Gentiles, but in chapter 11, and I suspect probably uh, concerning the nation of Israel and you and me as the church, Romans chapter 11 is probably the greatest chapter in all the Bible because it deals with God restoring the nation of Israel and the restoration of the nation of Israel. And so we, that's where we're going to begin to approach chapter 9 today. And uh, you remember I told you the concept about the easy way to remember it. That when you think of, and your whole Bible, and this is what we're going to learn uh, along with other things when we start next Saturday. You're going to find that, uh, that your whole Bible is basically built around two identities. One will be the nation of Israel. Remember last week we showed you how that, uh, God looks at Israel like uh, His wife. I gave you all those verses back in the Old Testament. then we know that the second identity is the church, and we know that the church is Christ's bride. So if you want to really begin to break down your Bible in its basic form, you're going to realize that there's two identities that are very important to follow through the Bible. The first one is the nation of Israel, and they are to God as His wife. The second one is the church, and the church is the bride to Christ. Those two identities, once looking at that chart back there that we use on Thursday nights, when we get into eternity, that's really what all eternity is about. God has His people, and Christ, His Son, has His people. And together, throughout eternity, we, we fulfill God's program, which is talked about in the book of Isaiah and many other places. Now, chapter 9 starts out with the greatest Christian that ever lived, that would be the Apostle Paul, giving us his personal biblical perspective <coughs> on the nation of Israel. And I want to read uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, and this is where we're going to be at today as we come down through here. Here's what he says. He says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, Who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Now we begin to see in this opening statement a number of things. The first thing, and we're not going to get into this today, we're going to talk about this probably next week. Uh, But the first thing we see here is Paul's burden for his own people. What will happen in your life, and like I said, we're going to focus on this next week. But what's going to happen in your life as you begin to grow and you learn about what God has for you and you you go through those spiritual levels of growth, God is going to develop within your heart, within your soul, a burden. And that burden is going to be the thing that carries you through and uh, and, uh, keeps your focus and drives you. It's going to be the thing that God uses to build character in your life because you're focused on what God wants you to do. You'll see that even uh, though these three chapters, what we're going to see today, they lay out the doctrinal position of the church as far as our understanding God dealing with Israel. Uh, The parallels, the spiritual parallels between uh, the nation of Israel and you and me as the church are incredible. I don't think that there's any other single thing in the Bible that has taught me more about my own relationship with Christ, my weaknesses, my failures, my success, uh, the good days and the bad days, my relationship with God. I don't think there's another single thing in the Bible that taught me more about who I am, why I struggle, and, and how to deal with my relationship with Christ more than the parallels between God dealing with Israel and me, and in my relationship with Christ. I know that there are two different groups, historically. And I know, in a doctrinal sense, in eternity, God is going to primarily have His nation, and Christ is going to primarily have His bride, and that whole thing is going to work together like a hand-in-glove scenario where God accomplishes everything that He wants. But right now, one of the greatest lessons that you can ever learn while we're still here on earth, is to realize the parallels between God dealing with His people as a nation and their relationship back to Him and the relationship that you and I try to have with Christ. And they're, they're really incredible. Uh, you know, and you'll see that today as we come through. You know, I, I've always been captivated by history. Uh, You know, on Memorial Day, we did our little military-type theme thing, and I showed you how to read, uh, uh, you know, a military uniform by what is on it. And uh, showed you how that, uh, you know, in the Bible, before they went in to get their inheritance, God laid out the the great battles. And I told you that, uh, you know what, you ought to get some combat ribbons on your spiritual uniform before you meet Christ. And you need to get into this fight. You need to get into this battle. You need to understand the difference between the church triumphant and the church militant. But I've always been captivated by history. I think that, you know, I think that you could take every other television program off the air and just fill it with History Channel programs and I'd be happy, you know. I mean, I just, I've always had a desire to know, to know about history. And I can get lost in it for hours. I mean, I really can most people don't, don't even know. They're so busy. You realize that Missouri is one of the richest places of heritage and history that you could ever hope to go to in places that most people never think about, never know. And I, I you know, I, 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 when I started looking around my own, uh, my own area, down in, uh, down in Osawatomie, in fact, about a mile from where your mom lives, there's, and I can't think of the guy's name, but it was the cabin where John Brown stayed, or as he was traveling through, and he was some relationship to him. And you can actually go to Osawatomie, and there in the park, they have moved that cabin from where it was and put it in the park and built an enclosure around. And there is a history lesson. You know who John Brown was, don't you? He's the guy that was the abolitionist That in the middle of the Civil War. They wound up hanging him or shooting him or something because of the fact that he, he killed people, because of the fact that uh, he, they didn't agree back then. It was right before the Civil War. Well, one of, I, I can't remember all the details, but it was either uh, you know uh, this guy's wife uh, was related to John Brown or John Brown related to the guy. But this guy was a pastor. And he had a church, and that church is still in Oshawatomie. And I when I worked down through that area, I, I would when i my, my lunch hour, many times if I was up in the Oshawatomie area, I'd eat lunch over there and I'd go through that that little log cabin. It's incredible. I'd go down and his churches. nobody's in it now, but I could, I, I, I could look in the windows and see it. I, right next to it's a cemetery. And I walked through the cemetery with all of the people that you read uh, in the cabin literature and in, the, in a church are buried in that cemetery. Absolutely incredible. You guys are from, you're from Paola. I worked in Paola for years and years and years. The main street in Paola that skirts around the city is Baptist. And Baptist runs uh, west to east and, and dead ends in Hospital Drive down there by the hospital. I worked down there for four or five years. And every year they have that, that historical days in, in Paola, Kansas, you know, and they you know that. And I would go up there in my lunch hour and, and walk around and talk to the guys. You know why they call it Baptist? Because back in the 1800s, in the middle of the 1800s, there was a Baptist mission down there for the American Indians. And I, when I got down there, I, 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 I walked up through there, and, and I, I actually found the foundational uh, structure for it and found some horseshoes and found, uh, you know, it was incredible. I love history. I, I could spend all my time in history. Kearney, Missouri, where uh, uh, um, John and Pam live. Jesse James's birthplace is in Kearney, Missouri. He's buried up there. And it's incredible to walk through those things and to see that. You go up to Lexington, where they had the Battle of Lexington. There's a cannonball still stuck in the courthouse where they fired on the city. You can go to Anderson House up there. You can still see the the wood Stark Dane with blood where they turned it into a hospital during the Civil War. Incredible stuff. Incredible stuff. I, I told Bev, I had a little trivia for you. Bev, you probably don't know this, but you know exactly where you guys' RV place is, or right in that area? And I'm sure... Back then, your property was probably part of it. You realize in World War II that that was a POW camp for German soldiers caught in Germany and brought over to here? You're wondering when all those sauerkraut packages are laying all around there. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. It's incredible. I, you take me to a Borders bookstore on a rainy day, and the sun can be out. You know where you'll find me? You'll find me in this section getting those books and looking at them where it says Kansas City, then and now. Now, I'm telling you, you give me a book that shows me a picture of downtown Kansas City the way it was in 1800 and then show me the same picture today, I'm gone. My mind just goes back to actually see something that has changed so much, but yet it's the exact same place. Union Station to me. You know what? Most people don't know this. You realize that every major city in, in in this country had a Union Station? Because back then, train travel was the only way to get anywhere. They didn't have airplanes. And the Union Stations were, were, were common in every major city. Maybe they weren't as grand as they were in Kansas City or Chicago or some of the major cities, but everybody had one. I, I could spend a day... Down at, down at the uh, train station down there, just walking through uh, that place and just look, looking at the, look the wall. When they first opened it, they had a whole section of things that they found. They found a, a piece on the ceiling where two workers had signed their n- name and the date when they put their work in. It's incredible. I walked down those long corridors and I know that, that, that those corridors were walked by hundreds of thousands of men and women. I, you know what I personally think on a kind of a spiritual plane or a kind of a practical plane? I believe that those great Union stations represent the souls of the very cities that they're in. I walk down those halls, and if you're by yourself, you can hear your footsteps echoing off the walls. And I look at those benches and those long halls that used to lean out to those trains. And I wonder how many boys in World War I sat in those train stations. I wonder how many boys in World War II that were going off the war. Boys 17, 18, or 19. I wonder how many husbands kissed their wives goodbye and kissed their little kid before they went off to Europe or went off to the Pacific. I wonder as they sat there waiting for that train what their thoughts were of going into a conflict, going into harm's way. And I know that many of them that sat right down there in that building never came home again. I think of things like that. I think of the heartbreak that must be represented by, by in that place. People who, who, who had all kinds of issues as, as mankind for what? Over 150 years traveled in and out of that place? Oh, that's where, that's where the soul of any city lies. That's where the immigrants came in. That's where the people that were looking for a fresh start or a new start. It's places like that. You know, what? by... There's all kinds of places. You know, what? by the airport right there, right down from the TWA Center there where they had that convention center, you realize along that road, it's right off of Admiral Boulevard there. You realize that there's a bar up there. I know it well. There's a bar up there. <laughs> and that bar was one of the favorite hangouts of Bonnie and Clyde. You go to Excelsior Springs. How many have ever been to the Elms? Now, back in the 20s and the 30s, the Elms was the place because of the spa. You know what they call the one room there in the in the, in the Elser Springs in the, in a place that it's up there? So you know what they call it? It's called the Al Capone room. You know why? Because Al Capone and his boys used to come over there in the twenties and the thirties, and that was their hangout. I mean, it's incredible what has happened. I mean, you're walking someplace there, and uh, you know, I think that people always. I think that the. Uh, the uh, the Union Station, you know, back in the twenties and when the when Frank Nash, remember Frank the story of Frank Nash was gunned down by the mob right in front of the station? Incredible. The same doors, the same bricks, the same pillars. Oh, if they could just open up and tell the story of what they saw. Incredible. I used to get a bat I used to get a magazine called After the Battle. I, I have them all. I haven't gotten any for four or five years. I don't even know if they're still putting it out, but it was called After the Battle, and what these guys did, and they were incredible researchers. They went to Europe and Japan and all places, and they actually researched battles of World War II, and they found the exact places where they had a picture, and in the exact then they would give you the exact comparison as it stood today, and told you the story. Incredible. Incredible. I've watched those places where in France or in Belgium where there's, a, there's a, a corner coming around the road and there's a little store there and a little house over here and there's a bunch of little cars coming around and they show you that same picture with the same store and the same house except there's panzers going down around that corner. Incredible, incredible. I spent a lot of time in Europe over my life and one of my favorite places to go was Holland. Holland has some of the most historic stuff that you ever. When I go to Holland, I always, Amsterdam in particular, I always feel like I'm walking back in history. You'll actually walk down the streets and, the, and along the canals. Those canals have been there from the 1600s. You look at the houses, the old European style, and you'll see across the top of them 1550, 1603, 1701. Those are the dates they were made. There's a place down right from from Central Station, that's what they call their train station, called Dam Square. It's called Dam Square because the North Sea come up alongside of that, and what they did hundreds and hundreds of years ago, that they filled all that in, and that used to be where the dam was, and then they filled it in and made a square out of it back in the 1600s, 1700s, and there was dam square. And yet, when you go into the art museums, You'll find that you'll find that the paintings like Rembrandt and the great painters of the 16, uh, 1700s and the 1800s that did their paintings. you'll see that right in that, the picture's a damn square, and you'll see along the back the little shops that were there in 1600 and 1700. They're still there today. I went down there one night late with my after the battle that it was about when, they, when the Germans took over Holland. Now, when the Germans took over Holland, the Adolf Hitler division, called the Liebenstandarten, they took over They took over uh, Amsterdam. And there's a picture in there, there's a picture in there of all the SS troops lined up on damn Square with all of their tanks and everything. And, and I stood right in that spot. Same bricks, same buildings. You can look in the background. Same shops. Nothing has changed. you walk down to... One of the corners of down around there, one of the streets, you'll find what they call the Anne Frank House. How many ever read the Diary of Anne Frank? Anne Frank was a Jewish girl. And you know that during World War II, the Nazis rounded up all of the Jews, and they started systematically taking them out of the cities. They did it in Poland, in the Warsaw area. They also did it in Amsterdam. They did it in every city in Europe for the final solution to rid Europe of the Jews. And there was a little girl by the name of Anne Frank. She was only 12 years old. And Anne Frank was a Jew. And back then, Jews were required to wear the star to identify them as Jews. And what they did was that because they were Jews, and they knew that the Nazis were going to round them up, they they put a little place up there, and they built a false wall, and they hid up there for like six or seven months. Well, the Germans were, and couldn't go out, couldn't come down, had to stay up there, could come down at night. There was a worker's place down there. And they had to be quiet. They couldn't talk. They couldn't walk because somebody would hear them walking and say, well, there's nothing up there, and, and turn them into the Gestapo. They got away with that for six months before they finally got turned in, and the SS and the Gestapo arrested them all. And little Anne Frank, 12 years old, she died in Auschwitz concentration camp. You go there today, it's a memorial of the Holocaust called the Anne Frank House. You can actually walk up those narrow stairs and walk behind that false bookcase, walk up into the little room. I stood up there and I thought to myself, I wonder what thoughts this room holds. I wonder what fears this room holds for somebody like that, that being afraid to to, to step out, couldn't leave your house out of the penalty of being sent into a concentration camp. You get on a train at Central Station in Holland and go down just a few, uh, about a half-hour trip down to Harlem. Not the one in New York, the one in Holland. <clears throat> and you walk down, there's another house. You know what it's called? It's called the Ten Boom House. Anybody know who Corrie Ten Boom is? Corrie Ten Boom was a, was a, was a young gal during World War II in her, in her early teens. And her father uh, was, a, was a watchmaker. And they had a little shop right there uh, on the corner uh, as you come down from the the train station. and, And that little shop to there is where they were Christians. And they believed what the Bible said about the Jews being God's chosen people. You know what they did? They put in a special place called the hiding place. That's what her first book was. They put in a special place where uh, that they, the Jews would come through. They had a little signal in the window that told the Jews that were looking for a place to hide that it was okay to come in by the way it was placed in the window. And you go there today and you can take a, tur- you can take a trip up through, the, up through the thing and see all the places of it. You know how they got betrayed? There was a baker right across the street that saw strange people coming in and he was, he was connected with the, with the Germans and he turned them in. And they had somebody that was fake, dressed as a Gestapo agent, come in and got in, and then they were arrested. You know what? You go there today, not only can you go through that house and see all the Corey Ten Boom stuff, can you go upstairs and find everything, the pastry shop is right across the street. It's still a pastry shop today. I walked down that alley. I ain't telling you. My wife knows. I got him at home. I walked down that alley uh, one time, and I was just lost in it, just lost in it. And I was so caught up in the history of it, and I'm standing there in the back in the alley where they were portrayed, where I wonder how many Jews must have stood waiting for that, looking for that refuge and as I stood there and I'm looking around i i i i I'm looking and I'm looking at the back thing just thinking and my eyes caught right down in the corner of the building there was a there was a brick that was kind of Killed her. It wasn't, and I didn't know what it was when I walked over. The moment I got to it, I saw that it was not really part of the regular bricks. And I'm down there, and I cleared a brush away a little bit, and I went and I pulled that thing out. And inside that little cubby hole was three keys. I have those keys today in my home. I thought to myself, what a piece of history. I climbed up to the church. Every hour, that bell rings. And I've been in Holland when I've heard that bell ring. Folks, that bell has rung for 400 years. I climbed up as far as I could get into that church steeple and I looked out across that city of Harlem and Amsterdam when I was, and I looked at that thing and I thought to myself, wow, what this church steeple has seen come and go in the last four or 500 years. History's incredible. Absolutely incredible. I've been in Corregidor where I walked down to those long tunnels where MacArthur was. And those tunnels today are, you know, they go on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet underneath the mountain of Corregidor. It's where your soldier boys and my soldier boys uh, faced the Japanese onslaught when Corregidor surrendered. That was a hospital during the war. It was the safest place to be. And you'll walk down those corridors today and you see all these offshoots of where it goes down through here. And I stood in there in the dark and I thought to myself, you know what? 60,000 boys on Corregidor had to surrender. Wow! Well, I bet the last couple of days in that place of what they thought about, thinking they're never going to go home again, wondering about what was going to happen to them, how ferocious the Japanese were, how under their code of, of, uh, uh, of Shinto, Shinto code that they never, they never took any survivors or they treated prisoners and terrible. And I stood there and I wondered what it must have been like to feel there that night. History is an incredible thing. I love Amsterdam since it's because it's such a rich history of the Dutch Baptist. You wouldn't understand why, how important Amsterdam was to you having your King James Bible this morning. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. When it comes to the history, the history of the Jews and the nation of Israel has always been... One of the most incredible things that I've ever studied and invested in my life in in history. Over the, you know, it's one of the two landmarks, and I've told you this before. It's one of the two landmarks in the book of Proverbs. One being the nation of Israel and the other one being the church. That really keeps us on, on focus. Over the years, my understanding and my sense of history has been shaped by those two landmarks. I'll never forget the time I first discovered the book of Ecclesiastes. And I read and I saw how Ecclesiastes in chapter 1 and 2 shows you the repetitive cycle of history. The rest of the Bible, all it really does. When you understand the book of Ecclesiastes and you realize that the book of Ecclesiastes basically shows you that history repeats itself, that all of history goes through a cycle, it goes through a process of, of just working its way through, then you realize that all of the rest of the Bible all of our history, and you and my personal life, you know what it is? It's nothing more than us realizing that the reason why we make the mistakes we make in life is because we don't learn the mistakes of history. Like somebody said one time, the only thing man never learns from history is the fact man never learns anything from history. It's incredible. You want to learn and see the future, study. You want to, I'm sorry, you want to learn to see the future? Study the past. Job chapter 8, verses 8 through 10 says this, incredible passage. It says, For inquire, I pray thee, of the former age, and prepare thyself to search to thy fathers." Somebody getting ready to study history. You know what it says? For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing, because our days upon the earth are a shadow. Shall not they teach thee, and tell thee, and utter words out of their heart? You know what he's saying? He's saying, we learn from history. History is the cycle which, because it's repetitive, the book of Ecclesiastes, the theme is there's nothing new under the sun. Why? Because it's already been here at one time before. It's incredible. A while back I did, and I think the greatest example of what I just told you about repetitive is history is found in something I found about 15, 16 years ago when I was researching. I, I did a study. In fact, some of you have it. We need to try to get it, John. I don't know. John, not here. We need to try to get uh, uh, John Buschetti's in a nursery. We need to try to find, uh, but I did a number of years ago uh, a complete study on the assassination of JFK. Mo- Some of you remember that. D- your husband got that? He does? We need to try to put that on CD. John Busquet could probably do that. It was one of the single greatest things that I ever researched in my life. And as I was researching it, I was coming to the point where i was I was looking at uh, and i 'm trying to find jimmy there 's a couple here got i was looking I was looking for some things and trying to find uh, as I was researching the whole concept. I found this this is the greatest single thing that i 've ever found that illustrates exactly what i 'm trying to tell you today uh, if somebody if you want a copy of this when i 'm done, if I get some lady that can type it up to clean up my notes and make copies of it i 'll we'll, give it to you. but this is what I found in my research on JFK, and it was a research project based on on repetitive history. It's incredible. The comparison between the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and the assassination of John F. Kennedy is one of the easiest things to illustrate what I'm talking about. First of all, follow me now. Watch this. Abraham Lincoln was elected in 1860. John F. Kennedy was elected in 1960. Both Lincoln and Kennedy were slain on a Friday and in the presence of their wives. John Wilkes Booth, the assassin uh, of, uh, of Kennedy, was born in 1839. Lee Harvey Oswald, the assassin of J.F. Uh, Kennedy, was born in 1939. John Wilkes Booth and Lee Harvey Oswald were both souther- Southerners who favored unpopular ideas. Both Oswald and Booth were murdered before they could be brought to trial. Watch this. John Wooks Booth shot Lincoln in a theater and ran to a warehouse. Lee Harvey Oswald shot Kennedy from a warehouse and ran to a theater. Abraham Lincoln's secretary, who was named Kennedy, Urged him not to go to the theater where he was killed. John F. Kennedy's secretary, named Lincoln, also told him not to go to Dallas. The slain presidents were succeeded by men who were both named Johnson and were both Southerners. Andrew Johnson was born in 1808 and Lyndon Johnson was born in 1908. Both Johnsons served in the United States Senate before coming vice president, and both Johnsons, after serving out the remainder of Lincoln's term, and the other serving out the term of Kennedy's term, were not reelected. And the last thing: both were working for the same religious system that, in both cases, wanted to remove the presidents of the United States. Now that is one of the most phenomenal things you're ever going to find that is so clear that history repeats itself. Incredible. And I've always been captivated by that. Now let's look at Romans chapter 9 because what we have here in these three chapters is a history of Israel. We have got to make the connection between the parallels historically of what Israel went through and then put them in our lives. Hey, Let me ask you a question. If I could give you a guarantee today, if I could give you a guarantee today that if I gave you this and you did it, that you could never lose your relationship with Christ and wind up with a judgment seat of Christ with everything that God wanted for you. If I could give you a guarantee today that I could guarantee that in your life, I wonder if you'd take it. Well, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to show you some things today based on what the greatest Christian that ever lived said about the nation of Israel and their relationship to God and the parallel spiritually between you and my relationship with Christ. And I want to show you how that we learn from history. I want to show you how that you and I learn from the mistakes that Israel made. Because what Paul's getting ready to say here that we're going to look at today is He gives them eight things. He gives them eight things that they had that they should have never missed the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Eight things that He lays out down through here that if they would have had them, they would have never missed the coming of Christ. And you want to mark these in your Bible because it's, it, the theme of chapter 9 now is where Israel got off track. And if you want to find out how you get off track... Learn from history. Now, he says in verse 4, you want to look at it in your Bible. Here's what he says. Who are Israelites? Now, here they come. I'm going to list them for you, and we're going to talk about them. Who pertaineth the one, the adoption, two, the glory, three, and the covenants, four, and the giving of the law, five, and the service of God, six, and the promises, and then verse 5, here comes number 7, who are the fathers and are concerning the flesh, Christ came, here's number 8, who, is our all, uh, who are all God-blessed forever and ever. Those are the eight things that He lists to us about the nation of Israel. From a historical perspective, if Israel would have stayed with these eight things and not forgotten these eight things, they would have never missed Christ at His coming. Now, what we're going to do here in just a second, we're going to pray, and then we're going to start coming through and look at these and making the parallels. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And Lord, truly, the only thing we ever learn from history is we never learn the lessons of history. Our country is in the shape that it's in because it fails, it refuses to learn the lessons and the mistakes of people down through history. We, as God's people, fail in our walk with God because we refuse to learn the lessons that God has for us through history. And Lord, let us examine these today with a humble heart, with a searching heart. Lord, as we look at next Saturday, and I take the young men and young ladies and the moms and dads in this church who want to learn the Bible Help them understand that the, I can teach them all of the things that we're going to talk about. I can put it all into a context for them. But the greatest teacher is history itself. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I want you to look at verse 4. We're going to talk about these, and then, we're going to make, and then we'll come back and we'll make some parallels. And I want, you, I want you to see how these parallels take shape. Now, the first thing he says is, who pertaineth the adoption. Now, here's what I want you to understand. When you look at the nation of Israel and you compare that to you and me as a Christian, here's what you always got to remember. When God dealt with the nation of Israel, it was always in a physical sense. He gave them physical blessings. He gives you and I spiritual blessings. He gave them physical promises about a physical piece of ground. He gives you and me spiritual promises about a spiritual place that we need to live in our lives. You remember when you come through in the Old Testament, you read about the battles, don't you? Battle of Jericho, Battle of Ai, all those great battles that they fought. But when you, those were real battles. Those were real armies that met Israel on a field of battle with real swords, real shields, real everything, and they hacked each other to pieces, and they fought a actual battle. And you see, that actual, that opposition, the enemy, the devil had placed there as a physical army to keep Israel from getting where God wanted them to go. So what did they do? They fought. Now, in your life and my life, we don't pass out weapons here and go out and fight other people. Why? Because the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6 that the weapons of our warfare are spiritual and not carnal. See the difference? where they fought a physical battle with physical implements of war. Your battle and my battle is a spiritual battle because the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our wrestle is against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. You see the difference? you got to see that. So when God adopted them, remember we just finished Romans chapter 8 and I showed you how that you and I were adopted. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But you've got to see, when God adopted Israel, He didn't adopt them. When you got saved, when you got saved, when you got saved, when you got saved, when everybody in here got saved, you got adopted as an individual into God's family as God's child. But when God adopted Israel in the Old Testament, who pretended adoption, He didn't adopt them as individuals. He took them as a nation. You've got to see that. You've got to understand that. That's the difference between the Old Testament kingdom of heaven and the New Testament spiritual kingdom of God. He took them as a nation. One of the greatest concepts you're going to find, and you need to mark this in your Bible in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, where he talks about Israel being his son. But he's not talking about in an individual sense. He's talking about in a corporate sense as a nation of Israel. Oh, I could spend... The next 12 hours showing you how that thing works. But we can't do that today. and We'll pick it all up. You see, our country's got it backward. The world's got it backward. Do you ever wonder why the world hates the Jew? Do you ever wonder why all down through history the world has hated the Jew and hates the Jew to this day? And that everybody in this world just about is turning toward the Jews and the the anti-Semitic mindset that they're against the nation of Israel? I'll tell you why. It's because God adopted them as a nation and no other nation. And then you know what God had the audacity to say? Once he adopted them as a nation, he told all the other nations, if you want to get into favor with me, you got to go through that nation right there. And he didn't even apologize to the Americans, the Russians, the Germans, the Balkans, the, the Filipinos, the Japanese, the Chinese. He didn't apologize to the Jehovah Witnesses, the Harry Christians. He didn't apologize to the Mormons. He just said, this is the nation. Get in or get out, but it goes through them. It'd be like this. We're all down there. We're all down there. We went to, President Obama invited our church down to, down to his place. And then we find out that he invited, oh, a bunch of other churches. So we're all in a room down there, big old hall. There's, there's 100,000 people. And, a, and Barack Obama is going to get up and talk to us. That's the President of the United States. And he's going to, he's going to, he's going to install a new policy now that's going to be for all churches. So we're all there. 100,000 people, maybe 200,000 are all there. And everybody's sitting around waiting, and he comes up to the pulpit, and he says, well, today, he said, I'm going I'm to bring together all the churches, and I've got the thing where we're going to work all the differences out, and I've got a plan that I want you all, we're going to adopt, and everybody, it's going to be a lot simpler. And then he looks over, and he sees Jenny sitting there, and he says, now, we have a young gal here, the name is Jenny! Jenny! You don't have to. Stand up. No, better yet, Jenny. Come on up here with me. So, Jenny, in front of what, 200,000 people, makes her way up, stands next to Barack Obama, the President of the United States. And he says, Now, I know you all have needs, and I know you all have things that you want to accomplish, and you need things to get it done. And I know sometimes you struggle to do that. Well, I want you to know we are now for religion, we're for God. I'll tell you what, I listened, I read Bob Alexander's book and how to study the Bible and I got it. And I'm with everybody now. And I'll tell you what, we're going to give everybody out there that's a Christian, we're going to give you everything you need. Now, to simplify it, whatever you need, whatever you want, it's all going to go through Jenny. Everybody to get whatever you want, the blessings, the goodness, it's got to go through one person. Now, the moment that happens, you know what's going to happen? A lot of people are going to say, Jenny's my new best friend. (laughs) Somebody else is going to say, oh, why is it her instead of me? Then as you try to help people, Jenny, you know what? You're going to find people who get close to you to be your friend who really don't want to be your friend. They just know that you got the keys to the cookie jar. Then you got those that... Don't like you because you got the keys and they're going to sandbag you and do everything they can to make you look bad and destroy you because they're jealous of the fact you got the keys. You know what God did? He took one nation and he sold all the other nations. Get in line behind this nation. Then he had the audacity to say all the families of the earth and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in this one nation. You know what you got? You got nations who understand the Bible who got close to Israel that's where you and I should be then you had nations that didn't like that because they thought they were the superior people they thought they were going to be the ones that run it they thought their political system they thought their hierarchy they thought their standard was going to be the one and God said no I'm sorry it's going to run through the Jews God picked one nation and said to all the other nations, get in line behind them. You got to read Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8 sometime. You got to read Acts chapter 17, verse 26. You know what he says? He says he's put everything, everything on this planet through the nation of Israel. And if you want to get it, you got to get it that way. You know what? You wouldn't even be saved here today. You wouldn't even be on your way to heaven today. You wouldn't even have what God has given you today if it wasn't a man named Jesus that came and died on the cross. But he came through the nation of Israel. They were adopted, not as an individual, but as a nation. You know the next thing he says? To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory. I don't know of another nation on this planet that ever saw the hand of God and experienced the glory of God in everything they did, more than a nation of Israel. You would never find another nation anywhere on this planet who had the power and the miracles of God in His hand, experiencing His glory more than... No wonder the world hates them. I mean, in Exodus chapter 12, when they were down in bondage, and Pharaoh had them all locked up down there as, as prisoners, and was slaving them to death. What did God do? God came down and miraculously let them out of Egypt. They got a little bit farther down the road, and Pharaoh said, "I'm going to show them. I'm going to get them." Pharaoh's whole army went after them. They come to the Red Sea. They're looking around and saying, "Now what are we going to do?" Moses says, "Just trust God. God will get us through." And then on the other side of him, Moses said, "Yeah, what are we going to do, God?" God said, watch this. No, He didn't. He split the Red Sea. You know how big the Red Sea is? No, I know what the scholars say. <laughs> See, they. You know why they say what they say? I'll tell you what they say. They say there was no... The scholarship always wants to take the miracles out of God in the Bible. So the Bible said it was the Red Sea, which is a miraculous, glorious thing. This, and many, most of the religious scholars say... Well, it wasn't really the Red Sea. That's a scribal error. It was called the Sea of Reeds. was only about six inches of water in it. I had a guy tell me that one time. We were talking, and the guy said, well, he said the bottom line was, he says, you, it really wasn't the Red Sea. I said, oh, it wasn't? He said, no, there was no miraculous miracle. It was the Sea of Reeds. And I said, oh, Really? He says, yeah, the Sea of Reeds, it's a known fact, was only had six inches or four inches of water in it. And I said, wow, still a great miracle, wasn't it? He said, what do you mean? I said, my Bible says that all of Pharaoh's army (laughs) drowned it. They drowned it in six inches of water. (laughs) What a miracle. (laughs) You know what? God's got a monkey wrench that'll fit any nut in this world. You think you're going to get a him? He'll, He'll get ahead of you. When they're out in the wilderness. They didn't have any water. God said, just hit a rock with your stick and water comes out. They're out in the wilderness. They didn't have any food. God says, no problem. I'm going to rain down manna from heaven. That's bread. Somebody says, well, we're tired of bread. He said, no problem. Look down in the, and the place was filled with quail. Now, you know what? I got to be honest with you. Water out of a rock, little bread trickling down from heaven, and and a covey of quail coming up. That that until you put a pencil to it. Do you realize that he did that for 40 years? Out of a conservative estimate? For two million people, probably, for 40 years of man, that would be 40 million tons of bread. That would be 40 million tons of bread, 40 million tons, that'd be 80 million tons. Out of that rock, 2 million people, 2 million gallons of water. That's a miracle. How about Jeremiah or or, uh, uh, Joshua chapter 6, the Battle of Jericho? They walk around that city, there's a city fortified. They said, How are we going to do it? We'll lose half our army. God said, I'll just walk around the city for a while. Seven times around. You know what happened on the seventh time? They blew some trumpets. And the walls came down. You know what the skeptics say? Well, they say, yes, we found the re- Jericho was a real place, and it doesn't lie and crumble. But we don't believe the miracles of God were involved. They say, you know what? There was about 200, 2 million people in Israel. And you say, you know what? 200 million people walking around the city for seven days in a route step. You know what route step is, don't you? When you're in step, we all march like this in the Army. Route step is everybody marches how they want. When you go across a long bridge, one of those suspension bridges in the Army, you, you walk in route step. You know why? If you walk in lock step, the bridge will fall down because the vibrations all coming from one person at one time in the same order will weaken the structure. So you go in route step. Everybody walks at a different pace, therefore it breaks up the vibrations, and it doesn't put the stress on it. Well, that's what they say happened that Israel walked around seven times a city in route step and the vibration from two million people walked around a city, brought down the walls. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you realize to this day, there's mathematicians who can figure back and you can buy a computer program and will run you. You know, you can get a computer program that will... That will uh, that will take you back and on your computer screen you can find the position of the stars and you can put everything uh, you want and you can find it, you can actually put a, a map up of the way the sky looked uh, you know, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. They have them all the way back. You realize when these guys try to put the thing together and, and, and try to put time together in some kind of understandable format, you re, do you understand that they, the mathematicians that do all this, that they have a little problem and that problem is that in history we're missing one day? and they can't find it anywhere we're missing 24 hours out of our history and there isn't a mathematician on this planet can tell you where it is I'll tell you where it is there's two places in your Bible the first place is in Joshua where the Sun stands still about a whole day and when you figure that time out up there, you got 10 degrees missing off our, of which is about 40 minutes. You know what the second place is? It's a the place there with Isaiah where the sundial goes back 10 degrees. You know how much 10 degrees is on a sundial? 40 minutes. Your missing day is found in your Bible. Why? Because Israel experienced the glory like nobody else did. God ever do that for you? When you're out there and you've got a lot of work to do and you've got things you've got to get done, you can use another couple of hours a day, you know what we got to do? We've got to go to daylight savings time. Now let me ask you a question. How how would Israel have that power of glory through the adoption, experience that and then walk away? You figure that one out, I want to know. I want to know. You know the third thing? They received the covenants. Now, your Bible contains eight covenants. Now, let me tell you what a covenant is. A covenant is nothing more than a simple term as a contract God makes with man. Out of those eight covenants in the Bible, you'll find that five of those covenants or contracts are made with the nation of Israel. So when Paul says, you guys got the covenants, he's talking about the covenant that God gave to Abraham, the one he gave to Moses. The covenant that he made with David, the covenant that he made with Israel as a nation, that he would regather them, and in Hebrews chapter eight you find the new covenant that he's going to give them when they're reinstated, or the millennial covenant. Hey, no other nation on this planet got that deal from God. Nobody, nobody, nobody. The fourth thing is that they received the word of God. We saw this in Romans chapter three, didn't we? We're talking about that Israel got the oracles of God. Our word for oral. That God gave them the Word of God by mouth through Moses in Exodus chapter 20. No nation on earth can claim that. Answer me. How, how can you have something so powerful? How can God... If God came down and, gave, and met me in the backyard or met me on the front yard or met me went along the road someplace and said, Bob, here is my Bible. I'm going to give it to you. And I want you to give it to everybody else. And Bob... I'm going to make sure that nobody messes with you. I'm going to give it to you. you got to get it out to everybody else. Do it. You think I'd walk away and say, okay, maybe tomorrow. How do you have the power? How did Israel have the power of God that God gave them, the oracles of God, and get to the place they didn't even believe it anymore? Incredible. The, 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 the next thing is, uh, the fifth thing is service for God. Verse 4, Israel was God's chosen na- nation. They were God's vessel. When he gave them the word of God, the service of the nation of Israel through the priesthood, through the scribes and the Levites was to have the custodianship of the word of God. How do you get, how do you serve God? How do you have God give you something to do? Do it for God. Get to the place where you experience God in your life, and then, as Israel did. And then just simply one day say, I'm done now, no thanks. The six things, the promises of God. And they got promises literally and also spiritually. Let me explain to you the concept of the promised land. When God called Abraham out of Genesis, He called him out of the Ur of Chaldees. That's where Baghdad is today, by the way. Always a picture of the world system. He called him out of Baghdad, the Ur of Chaldees, and then He said, i got a land over here. We know it as the land of Palestine today. i got a place over here because you are my people, because you're my nation. i got a place over here that I'm going to give you for your possession a literal piece of ground, and I'm going to give it to you. Now, when he brings them out of Egypt at Exodus 12, when he brings them through Joshua, they cross over. And it's called the promised land. It's called the promised land for two reasons. First of all, it's called the promised land because it's the land that God promised to them. The second reason it's called a promised land is because God gave Moses the word of God and Joshua tells them on no uncertain terms in Joshua chapter 1 that if they want to stay in that land that God promised them, the only way you stay in that land is to keep the promises that God gave you in his book. You know how hard it is to keep the promises in the Bible that God gives us? But you know what will help you? A couple red sea crossings in your life. You know that'll help you stay in this book to the promises? A couple of things that God does miraculously, like stopping the planet Earth for you. Service for God's incredible. I, I look at it, I'm a studier of history. I love history. There's no greater nation to study in the history of this world than the nation of Israel other than the church. But I ask myself all the time how do you get that kind of treatment? How in the world do you get that kind of treatment from God and then just say, no thanks, sorry, I got a better deal? Then the seventh one, who are the fathers, that would be the Old Testament patriarchs in verse 5. I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Hebrews, but in Hebrews chapter 11, you have a chapter which we call today as God's Hall of Fame. And it's really a listing of the great men and women in the Old Testament. We call them patriarchs. And it's a history of the great men and women that that really formed the nation of Israel at their inception and God used to bring the nation of Israel to where God wanted them to be. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, he says this, Wherefore. Now, when you read your Bible, you know this that when you find the word there wherefore or therefore, it always means because of what I just said, this is where we're going. You know, it, it may be chapter eleven and chapter twelve, but the wherefore, the therefore put the two chapters together. You should know that. When he says wherefore, he's talking about what he just told you in the chapter eleven. He's talking to Israel here. And he says, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. You know what he's saying? He's saying, go back and study history. Look at Moses. Look at Abraham. (coughs) Look at Isaac. Look at Jacob. Look at Joseph. Look at David. Look at Elisha. Look at Elijah. They didn't have perfect lives. They struggled. They had ups and downs. They had people that hated them, wanted to kill them. Many times they took on a whole nation by themselves. He says, you know what? You need to understand that those are the men that I use to form the very nation that you are. And I'll tell you something else. You go to Matthew chapter 1 and look at the genealogy of the kingly line of Christ and Luke chapter 3 and study the human line of Christ. You'll find every one of those guys. Right on that line of Christ. You know why it was so important to remember the fathers? Because that was the line that Christ came from. That was the line that Christ came from. They'd forgotten that. They'd lost sight of that. Then the eighth thing, the promise of getting their inheritance. He says, God blessed through Christ forever and ever. You know, their inheritance, as I said, was a literal inheritance. Rome, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, again, verses 8 and 9 are two great, chap- two great verses, or three great verses, 8, 9, and 10. And here's what it says. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he could which should re- uh, after receive for an inheritance. Now, there it is right there. That's everything I've just given you so far with Israel. Abraham was called out. To go to a place that afterwards he was going to receive for an inheritance. What does that mean? God called him out of the earth of Chaldees, took him to the promised land, because that was going to be his inheritance. That was going to be his inheritance. He obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whether he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise. There it is. See? Just like I told you. As in a strange country. See? Strange country. He didn't know anything about it. He'd never been there before. When he got there, he had to rely on the promises that God gave him to keep him in that land. Dwelling in Tabernacle with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him. There it is, with the same promise. They're all heirs. Now look at verse 10. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You know what he's looking for? He's looking for Jerusalem. He's looking for that literal city, which is going to be his inheritance, and Israel's inheritance for down through the eons of eternity. And there are no eons in eternity. But he's looking for that. That's what he's looking for. It's incredible. You know what? And this is what 9, 10, and 11 is talking about. Let me tell you something. That promise was given to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. Israel never got that promise fulfilled. Never has. We know they haven't because they lost sight of these eight things. And when they lost sight of these eight things, God, as I said earlier, put them on the back burner, turned his attention to Christ's bride, the church, and they're bringing them in. But chapter 9, 10, and 11 of Romans shows you exactly what he's saying here. God called them out. God had something for them. They reneged on it. They turned their back on God. So God put them on the back burner. They never got that city. They never found that city. They never got that inheritance on this earth yet. But Romans chapter 9, 10, 11 shows me why they got screwed up. God went to the Gentiles, and then chapter 11 shows me, but they're going to get it in the future. They're going to get that city. They're going to get that inheritance. It's incredible. It's incredible. Now, quickly here, let me me talk to you about some incredible parallels. Now, if you didn't hear anything else I've said so far, hear this. Just as, I'm going to say it real slow. Just as the Jews lost sight of these eight concepts that would have led them right to Christ's first coming so that they would not have missed it, so we as God's people in a spiritual sense lose sight of these same eight principles in a spiritual parallel, and that's the reason why some of us will miss the second coming of Christ. Now, I'm not saying I'm talking about saved people. Some of you sitting under the sound of my voice this morning are saved, and you're going to go to heaven. But you're going to miss the blessings and the inheritance that God got for you spiritually just the way that you missed it physically. And it's for the same eight reasons. Now, let's turn it around. I showed you for the historical perspective. Now, let's come back around and look at these eight things very quickly from a a spiritual perspective. Remember, God's son... Spiritually is me. God's son Israel Israel as a nation is Israel. How they got to keep the blessings and the power of God is the same way I get to keep them. And how they fell back in the world is how exactly I will fall back. It's just that simple. Forget these eight things, you'll lose the blessings and the power of God. There was no reason, ladies and gentlemen, once you understand history, once you understand Romans chapter 9, 10, 11, Once you understand what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, there is no reason for Israel to miss what God had for them. And on the same basis, my friend, there is no reason for you and I to miss what God has for us. Before I get into this, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to give you a great verse that parallels into this. And you want this. You want to mark this if you don't already have it in your Bible. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Pick it up in verse 5. Now, Paul's talking about the nation of Israel here. Now watch this, verse 5. But with many of them, Israel. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were for our examples, you and me in the church age, to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of this destroyer. Now here it comes. Here it comes. Here it comes. Learn from history. Here, it learn from history. Now, all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world come. Wherefore, what I just said, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. See that thing? You know what he just told you? Go back and see where they got screwed up. That's exactly where you and I will get screwed up. That's what he's showing you. That's what he's telling you. You want an insurance policy against going into apostasy and losing your love for God? You want an absolute guaranteed insurance policy that will guarantee you will never go back to the world? Get the same thing that they had and lost in your life and my life. Just that simple. All right, let's talk about it here for a second. You know what admonition means, the word admonition? The word admonition is a great word because it means reproof it means preaching you see admonition when he says these things for admonition he's not just telling you about these things he's preaching these things to you he's using it as a rebuke that if you're doing some of these things stop doing it because it's going to learn from history it's going to mess you up you know what Christianity wants today You know what what Christians want today? They want preaching, but they want no conviction. You see, you want me to preach, but you don't want me to convict you. You want to walk out of here, you know, with a nice glowing feeling about yourself. I hope my messages always point out some deficiency in our world someplace. I know it does in mine. See, you only have to put up with it once. I spend Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday putting it together. It beats me up all week. No wonder I'm so passionate about beating you up. But that's what Christianity wants today. It wants preaching, but it wants no conviction from the preaching. They want preaching. They want Bible, but they don't want any admonition from the Bible. Somebody said one time years ago, uh, left. The church and and said, "Well, we're just going to go someplace where after church we feel better." <laughs> you know what my answer was? Well, you know what? If you'll get right with God, you'll feel better right now. You know what the Bible says? It says, "He that loveth the honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet." I told this story a couple of Thursday nights ago. Years ago, my my mentor in the Lord, Mel Sabaka we had a at the Stark County Fair. We had a booth where we would win people to Christ and do a little surveys, you know, and all those kind of things. I really cut my teeth on learning. We took a break, and we were out getting a bite to eat. And, and, And I told you, Mel, he never missed a trick. In everything he saw, he saw some spiritual plane to it. I have tried to put my life that way, but I pale in comparisons to him. Everything he saw, when everybody else saw one thing, he saw the spiritual application to it. For instance, we're getting a hand hot dog and drinking a coke down out there, and we're kind of walking around, and it was this guy who was who was you know on a midway and he was doing all kinds of gun guy was juggling things you know, and all uh, and and you know and he had a little spiritual comment about that, and somebody else was breathing fire, and he had a Luke chapter 16 comment about that, you know. So we're walking down there, and this guy had this lady on a big round board, and she was she was tied up to it like that. And the guy was a knife thrower, and the guy come back. He had all these knives on a table. You know, he was a great knife thrower. I guess I forget his name, but anyway, the lady was on there, and he 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 blindfolded. No, I think they're all cheating. I think they got little holes in there. But anyway, blindfolded, took those knives and phoo, 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 completely outlined her body. I'm standing there amazed. I'm still young and stupid. I thought it was all real. It's all fake. I'm standing there amazed. You know what Mel said? He says, God, help me never to preach like that man throws knives. I went, Woo. You know what he was saying? When I preach, don't let me just go around the outside. When I preach, I want to stick you. You see, Christianity, they, they want preaching. You just don't want any conviction that come from preaching, see? No admonition. Does your kids like to be told what to do? Show me a parent. Do I have a parent here that your child loves to be told what to do? Well, what makes you think that you as a parent with your child is any different between your heavenly parent and you? Both got the old, same natu- old, old sin nature. All right, first of all, the adoption. Just as God adopted Israel as a nation, He adopted you and I as an individual. Remember a couple of Thursday nights ago? A couple of Thursday nights ago, that young, young man had come in and he obviously didn't believe the Bible, didn't believe in God. He kind of wanted to ask some questions. And, and here's what he said. Here's what he said. If you remember, if you were there that night, he said this. He says, because somebody had asked a question about a relationship with God, and I was explaining how to have one. And he raised this question, and, and this is the only time he kind of got close to digging me. And I, and I, and I, but I understood where it was coming from, so, you know, no problem. I'm going to be nice to this guy. You know what? He, he doesn't understand that the big anvil is swinging over his head, and all I got to do is push the button, and I'll crush him. But I, I was very kind. And here's what he said, if you remember that night. He says, how can anybody say... If you believe in a God that is as eternal as everybody says He is, how can anybody, how can anybody be such an egotist? How can anybody be such an egotist that would think that if God is that way and we are who we are, who would anybody could think or be such, have such an ego, was His word, that he could think or she could think that God would you could have a relationship with God now you know what I thought about that thing all week long I thought about that thing stayed in my head and my heart all week long and I thought about that question all through the week not that it shook me what I thought I agreed with him in my mind because (laughs) the thing that got me is the question was the, the, the question that somebody asked was how can I have a relationship with God That guy's question was, why would God want to have a relationship with us? That thing drove me nuts all week. And the answer is, you know what? That is the greatest thing about God in me. He is one opposite end of the universe. I'm the other. He's holy. I'm rotten. He's holy. I'm vile. He's holy. I'm a slime ball. Why in the world would a holy God want to have a relationship with me? But you know what? He does. Bless God. That's where it's at. Somebody says, well, I don't understand how God could ever send a man to hell. I don't understand how God would ever want to take any of us to heaven. But he adopted us. And that's the answer. He adopted us. He took us in. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now what, what behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. I agree. Nothing I could deserve, nothing you could deserve. But he did, and he wants the fellowship. And not only did he want a fellowship, he wanted to adopt me. We got a couple, they're not here today. They had to go to the airport. Jamie and Brian. Jamie and Brian are two of the sweetest kids I've ever had in my ministry. They can't have kids. So they, they, they're foster parents. They take kids. They adopt kids. Hoping that someplace down the line they'll get the right scenario with the right kid with the right background that when they get them. Uh, and, and, you know, remember, that, remember I introduced them that time when they had those three little guys? Well, the next Monday, services called up and said, we've got to take them back. I don't know how to do it. I mean, you, they, they want kids so desperately, and they take those kids. I tell them, I said, I got more respect for you than I think anybody in the world. I couldn't do it. Why, well, you give me a puppy, and, and he stay in my house. <laughs> my wife, when, when I read the paper, she takes the dog section out that's got the little lab puppies in it. <laughs> uh, somebody brings over a lab puppy and says, hey, you know what? I know you lost Tinker. Here it is. I don't want a third dog. I'm happy with two I miss Tinker, but you know what? I'm not going out and get another dog, but if you bring a puppy over, it's staying. I don't know what to tell you. That little thing wagged around with a tail and, you know, and that little puppy breath and all those things, it's staying. I can't imagine what it must be. They want to adopt children and get them in there. And they snuggle to you and they started getting close to you. And then you get a phone call and they rip them out of your arms and say they got to go back to an abusive family. Every time I see him and her, here's the dominant conversation. Looks like we might get one next week. He told me last night. He didn't care who won the ball game. He came up and he said, well, I want you to know, the Division of Family Services called. They got, got one that might work out for us this time. We're going to get it. They never get discouraged. They've had kids that they've taken and they've taken back and taken and they've taken back. And if, 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 you know what, that only happened to me once and I'd say, that's it. I'm collecting baseball cards. I only get rid of them when I have doubles. (laughs) I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. You got to be a special kind of person with a special kind of heart and love. Not to love the people, the kids. We could all do that but when you have your heart ripped out when you take them back for how do you I don't know but I know the excitement every time that glimmer in their eye every time when they come over and they say oh boy next week might be it I look at that and I think to myself you know what that's exactly how God must be feeling this morning about some of you that are right there to get saved the people that you are working with that are trying to bring in and get saved, and God is so excited because of the fact that they're right on the verge of letting Him adopt them. You and I were adopted, man. It's like the kid in school. He was adopted, and every time he went to school, because he was adopted, you know how mean kids can be. <clears throat> All the kids was going, na 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 na. that's not your mommy and that's not your daddy, da 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 <coughs> We got moms and dad, you don't. And you know, and, and he came home and the the kid told his foster parents or who adopted him, you know, uh, what this thing was and they feel bad about him. You know, kids can be so mean. And they said, Well, honey, what did you say? And he said, Oh, it's just no big deal. He said, I told him. I said, No, it's not that way at all. <coughs> he says, Your mom and dad had to take what they got. My mom and dad picked me out of a whole bunch of other ones. <laughs> hey, hey, folks, hey, guys, you want to talk about God? You want to talk about a relationship with God? want to talk about an adoption? He picked you. How do you walk away from that? How do you really understand God adopted you, but then you say, no thanks. I don't get it. Then it says, see the glory. Oh, the miracles to Israel and the miracles to us. Have you ever had a time when God intervened in your life? Have you had a time that God came down and did something that was the most miraculous thing in your life? I've seen some of you come to the place (coughs) that when you disciple your first person. And it's the first time in your life when you really on your own, one-on-one, you do something for God for somebody else. I remember the first time I preached and somebody gave me a love offering for it. It's not that I cared about the money, but I sat down back in my hotel room and I put that little money in a pile and I just looked at it. It wasn't about the money to me, but it was about that all of my life I had worked and done things for the job that I had and I did this and that. That was the first time in my life that I did something for God and God said, here, let me pay you for what you did. I've watched some of you in circumstances where God's come down and did incredible miracles in your life. I had a little girl. Years and years and years and years ago, her name was Ruthie Powell. Ruthie Powell was one of the sweetest gals that I have ever met in my life. Ruthie Powell was about 21, 22 years old when they found the first brain tumor. And they took that brain tumor out. She had to wear a turban cut her skull all the way open to get it out. She was the happiest little girl you ever met in your life. You want to talk about somebody that had the joy, joy, joy down in their heart. She had it. Then they found the second tumor. And she had to go through that process all over again. Then a little bit later on, about a year and a half later, they found the third and final tumor. And this one was inoperable. I was in the room the night she died, her greatest burden was the fact that her mother was not saved. And she asked me to pray with her that night that, that, that her from her death would result the fact that her mother would get saved. And then she asked me to preach her funeral. I'll, I'll never forget it as long as I live. Uh, it was one the, and I was a young guy back then. This was 20 years ago. I was just a novice at this myself. I had never been faced with that kind of scenario. Everybody I buried was over 90 or, you know, or, or, or dead and, and, and saints in heaven. Or I mean, I, I just never faced with this before. And I remember when I got up there, I said, God, I don't know what I'm going to do. My standard sermon on death and screen rules ain't going to work here. I can't tell you. I cannot tell you another time in my life. Well, I'm going to tell you a couple more times. There have been a few times where God ever came down. We sing the song, Heaven Came Down and Glory Filled My Soul. That was the song that day. When I got on that pulpit, just as clear as I'm looking at you today, God took over that thing and I preached. And then it was one of those things where it was God calling in plays like a football game from the bench because I didn't know what I was doing. And I get down and I just preached a whale of a sermon. Now I'm saying, what do I do? Because you know what, you don't give sermons at funerals. I give imitations at funerals. Well, I'm I'm over here and I'm and I'm and I'm stuck. Well, I'm I'm over here and I'm and I'm and I'm stuck and I'm done and I got everybody's head bowed. And I said, folks, I after today and what Ruthie said, I said I I, I don't know how to do this. But I said, I feel there needs to be an invitation to give that. And before I got that out of my mouth, there was a lady sitting over here right about where she She jumps up, runs over, and I'm thinking, runs over to the organ and starts playing just as I am. Now, I had never met this lady before. She told me later. She said, you know what? I'm sorry, Pastor. I am sorry. I said, sorry for what? She said, did I get up and, and got over there and do that? She said, when you said that, God just told me. God just told me, go play just as I am on the organ. I'm sorry, Pastor. That's what he told me. And I said, it's all right, sister. He told me a few things today, too. And yes, her mother was one of them that got saved. I can't explain that. The only other time it even can compare to me to that. Remember Jason's grandmother that died? Jason comes to me and he says, "Uh, you know what? My grandmother's not doing well. She's probably not going to live very long. Can we go over and talk to her? And I said, absolutely. So him, me, and Kristen went over there and sat down and talked with her and made sure about her salvation. It was just a short time after she died. And that family on Jason's side, most of them were unsaved. They were just kind of a wild crowd. But she was a godly grandmother, and they respected her. And boy, I'll tell you what, you talk about another time in my life when God came down and and opened that thing up, and we had eight people saved at that funeral. I can't explain that. But there's been times in your life when God has done things supernaturally that you couldn't do yourself. I've watched some of you come to the place where when you're like Moses, when you disciple your first person or you teach the Bible or you do something here for God, the first time in your life you do it, you look like Moses coming off the mountain, your face just glows. You'll find yourself in scenarios where God, you're, you're, you're at a place where you can't go anymore, you can't do anymore, and God himself will come down and part those waters, man, and make a path for you and give you exactly what you want. Now, my question is this. Let me ask you a question. When that happens in life, when you realize that you're adopted, how do you turn your back and go the other way? How do you walk away from that? How do you walk away from that? The third thing is, oh, we don't, we don't have the covenants there to Israel, but for us, it's the church. And it's through that contract that God made with us that the church is everything that we get our spiritual blessing from. Somebody says, well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. No, but you've got to go to be a church to be a good Christian. Because the Bible says that the husbands love your wife like what? Christ loved the church. What kind of Christian are you to forsake the very thing that Christ himself loved and gave himself for? It's, it all comes down to not understanding the concept. We don't have a covenant, but God gave us the church. The fourth thing, the Word of God. You live in a world today that has no truth, but God has given you an absolute truth. You know, in in, in Hebrews chapter 6, there's a great, God asked the nation of Israel a great question through Paul. He's saying to them, he says, you, Israel, who were once enlightened, who tasted of the heavenly gift, who were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, who tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, he says, if you fall away. My question is, If you've had all those things, how do you fall away? How do you ever have the the fact that you were enlightened with the Word of God, now you're in darkness? How do you taste the heavenly gift and say, no thanks, give me a beer now? How How do you be a partaker of the Holy Ghost and then say, no thanks, I've had enough? How do you taste the good Word of God and then develop a taste for something else? How do you have the power of God in your life and then just walk away from it? How do you get to the place in your life where that Bible is everything to you and then two years later you're in a place where it means nothing to you? I don't understand that. But I'll understand how you get there because we forsake the same eight things that Israel did. And just like they missed the first coming of Christ, some of God's people are going to miss the second coming of Christ after their inheritance. The fifth thing. Service of God. Oh, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. God has a service that He wants you to perform. He thinks it's on, He thinks it's reasonable once that He died for you, you to serve Him. God people think it's unreasonable. I don't want to tell you. The promises of God, the sixth one. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Having therefore these promises dearly beloved let us cleanse ourselves from all the filth of the flesh and the spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I talked to you earlier about Israel's promises to keep them in the promised land. Well, your promised land and my promised land is a spiritual walk with God. Theirs was a literal piece of ground that they had to obey the promises to stay in the land. You and I have to obey the promises to stay in the walk. Same thing. then we have our fathers too, don't we? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, talked about a great cloud of witnesses. Just as Israel had its great fathers, the patriarchs, men who God used to form the nation of Israel, you and I have men and women that God has used that we can look back and see and find a point of reference for truth in what God was doing. Somebody says, well, you go to Bob's church. He's a heretic. Really? Hardly. I teach my Bible like John of Antioch taught his. You know who he was? Of course you don't. My preaching is based on Savonarola and John Huss. You know who he is? Of course you don't. My mission philosophy is based on Count Zindendorf and August Spandenberg. You know who he was or where they lived? Of course you don't. My true line roots go back to Peter Waldo and John Clark. Do you know who they are? Of course you don't. My evangelistic style in preaching is based on Mordecai Ham and Gypsy Smith. Do you know who they are? Of course you don't. My courage to stand and face the reality and preach the truth in a world that hates it, my courage comes from a guy by the name of Latterman and Ridley and Thomas Cronwell. Latterman and Ridley. Latterman said to Ridley, but they're being burned at the stake. And the quotation from 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 12, that I've read a thousand times to encourage myself when I wanted to quit. And you don't even aware of or what it means. I'm Not talking to you, of course. I'm talking to people that call me heretics. You say, you got passion for the ministry. You bet I do. Like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. You know who they are? Of course you don't. You have to be fearless like Peter Cartwright. My concept of Bible college is based on a great man by the name of William Tennant and his concept. You have to be fearless in a pulpit like J. Frank Norris. Who one time down in Texas who disrupted the whole Southern Baptist Convention. That a crowd had where he was preaching had met down the road. and They had a rope and they were going to hang him. And somebody come up and said, Frank Norris, you better get out of town. There's 200 guys down here in front of the saloon. They got a rope. They're going to hang you. Well, you know what he did? I'll tell you what most preachers would do. They'd be out of town so fast you wouldn't. They'd be on 911. You know what he did? He went down to the crowd, get on the back of a pickup truck and preached to them. And the crowd got saved. You don't even know who he is. I'm a heretic. You better check out the boys I've been hanging out with. And a hundred thousand others like them. Men who put aside the weight and the sin that so easily beset them. And run with patience the race that was set before them. Now the last thing. The promises of our inheritance. Someday God's going to give Israel everything in eternity that they want. And that they have. I gave it a eight verse in Romans 8, 17 and 18. If children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So be that if we suffer with him, that we shall also be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Keeps you in perspective. You don't get focused on everything around you in the world today or your job or what you have and what you don't have because you realize that all that's temporary. That the real deal is coming. But we got a job to do. We got a ministry to do. And I'm telling you. Just the same eight things that Israel should have never lost sight of but did. Is the same eight things that you and I should never lose sight of but will. And in both cases, when Israel should have never missed the coming of Christ the first time and missed their inheritance, they did. Now they got to go through the tribulation. There's no reason for you and I to miss the second coming of Christ or to be unprepared and lose our millennial inheritance, but we will. I'm going to leave you with a great admonition. In 2 John chapter 1, verse 8, Revelation chapter 3, verse 11, and these I close. You've heard it. Learn from history. You want a guarantee for your own relationship with Christ? I just gave it to you. Figure out these eight things. Get them down in your life. They'll never lose your focus. Second John chapter one verse eight simply says this: Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Revelation chapter three verse eleven. Hold fast that which thou hast, and let no man take thy crown. This world and everything in it exists for one reason to destroy those two aspects in your life, and to take those eight things out of your world that are the very eight things you need to focus on and keep straight on because it's those eight things that will get you through when nothing else will. When I talk about missing the second coming of Christ, I'm not talking about not going into rapture. I'm talking about standing before Him with the judgment seat of Christ and losing your millennial inheritance because you lost your focus that things in this world were more important than things that He wants you to do. You didn't learn the lessons of history. You missed the parallels. You didn't see and learn from the mistakes that they made. You missed the admonition. You wanted preaching. You just didn't like being convicted about it. Well, it takes both, my friend. And I'm telling you, they missed it because of the fact they missed those eight things. And you and I are in danger of missing those eight things, missing it too, if we don't keep those eight things in our life. Let no man take your crown and make sure. And what all you do and whatever you do, whoever you marry, however many kids you have, whatever you get involved in the life, make sure you get a full reward. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus.